Hey there, servus. My name is Haishan Wade and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now, what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about the primary internal struggle of the EU, the current state of the JCPOA negotiations, and the Libyan election. All that and more coming up. So, Palestine and Israel continue bitter fighting in the West Bank as Venezuelan President Maduro affirms he will not abandon the Palestinians, although no promises of significant aid were made, and this sort of continues the trend we see between Israel and Palestine fighting each other. But what I have noticed over the course of us observing this conflict is that Israel has sort of taken up a more aggressive stance than they have before as over the recent weeks and this one as well Israel has continued its efforts to push its population into areas that are previously well and currently but areas that are currently Palestinian dominated and in the process they're forcing the Palestinians off it's something they've been doing for a long time like a very long time but as of now, we see them doing it at a much more aggressive rate and pushing more people off at a time um, because we also have Israel announcing that they want to double the number of people, the number of Jewish people specifically, living in the Golan Heights, another majority Palestinian area where they're trying to force the Palestinians out. Which leads me to ask, are they trying to settle the issue by being as aggressive as they are? Because as it stands, they're getting a really big pass. Like, there's so much, you see so much condemnation of uh, China over the Uyghurs and of China over the, U- not the Ukraine. You see condemnation of Russia over Ukraine and Belarus, but you don't see condemnation of Israel so well you see it just not among political leaders you see it at more of a grassroots level from people who object to the things that Israel is doing but you see more outrage towards countries like China and Russia for what they're doing uh, as opposed to what Israel is currently doing right now they have a past and so it seems to me like it's caught on to the Israeli leadership that they have this pass and now they're trying to see how far they can run with it before someone either calls them out or if they can just settle the issue altogether by forcing the Palestinians off of more and more land and territory. And if that's all they're able to do, then I guess from the point of the Israelis, that's fine. You've settled larger portions of the issue by stripping the Palestinians of more land, which you could do in waves every time attention dies down from you. And, or at the very least, once they start getting criticized more, they can just go back to the really, really, really slow pace that they were doing the same thing before. 
because if they do it slowly, then you don't get condemned as much. And it's, it seems like that's the path Israel seems to be going down to me as I have been observing this. Um, and I guess that's just the solution they're going to choose to go with because I don't see how they're going to settle it. Because when I look at a map of Israel, I can't help but ask who thought that that would be a good idea to have Israel and then small patches of Palestine on either side of Israel. One side has the West Bank, the other side has the Gaza Strip where they have access to the Mediterranean. But it's not contiguous. You have to go through Israel to get from one part of Palestine to the other. And I'm like, who thought this was a good idea? If anything, you should have like the border between, say, either Israel and Egypt or the border between Israel and Lebanon. That strip of land, that should have been Palestine. Choose one so that there is a contiguous country. I don't know who thought that the borders that have been currently, we have currently for Israel and Palestine were a good idea because it's created conflict. Palestine is not a contiguous country. And although that's something you've seen in Europe before, um, these people used to be contiguous uh, under the Ottoman Empire or when they were a, a direct a UN directory, technically under British control. And when they were under the various other empires like Rome and the Mamluks. Case in point, Palestine has almost always been able to interact with the rest of Palestine. But once you've established Israel in this strange way, where it cuts through Palestinian lands, you create a problem. And it's not like you're going to be able to redraw the borders now. Uh, well, Israel's trying, but I don't think Israel's going to agree to, okay, let's, let's start over. We're going to have Palestine here, this strip of land in the south, and then the Israelis get to live up here in the north, which, in my opinion, should have been done from the start. But instead... Now people are settled in. People have adjusted to the borders that are the B. Uh, well, not the Palestinians. But you're never going to get the Israelis to agree to a sudden change of borders like that. Especially after everything they've done to the Palestinians and are currently doing to the Palestinians. This problem could have been avoided. But because it was not. And because such a deliberate lack of diligence on where people live, um, which I guess is emblematic of the Middle East's borders in general, but this lack of diligence in where people lived when drawing the borders of Israel and Palestine have created this problem. And now it's reaching a point where it's come to a head, and Israel, who has the strength to do something about it, and the pass from the international condemnation, now they're going in for the kill and using the flare-up in violence and fighting between them and Palestine is the justification for doing so. And quite honestly, I feel like that may just be their best option. And it feels strange to say that, you know, you don't really like watching people bully other people, basically, especially in this pretty ground level way where it's literally you're forcing someone off their home but what option does israel have they keep getting into fights with the palestinians 
the way their way of life is different from Palestine. It's a clash of culture. They're both claiming the same plot of land because that's Jerusalem. What are you going to say? The whole crusades were fought to reacquire this land. It's Jerusalem. But the Palestinians have been living there for hundreds of years as well. So who gets, who gets the claim to the land? The Palestinians are oppressed now, but the Jews went through the Holocaust. So are we going to play the oppression Olympics? It feels strange. Um, no, me personally, I just, I don't want to be a part of this conflict, but watching it and the way it's playing out, it seems like a tragedy unfolding right before our very eyes. And we see a couple of those and we can just take a look across the pond to Ukraine to see yet another tragedy as well. But what option does Israel have in dealing with this problem? Because... They were doing it slowly over time. Maybe they could stop, but uh, would the bad blood be too much to overcome at this point? Have they already crossed the point of no return? I mean, I guess we would never know that unless Israel really did stop pushing people off their land. And that might be the only course of action other than both Israel and Palestine being occupied by a foreign power and forced to live together but simultaneously having essentially the open borders of internal migration, because if you're conquered by another country, now you're not two countries anymore, you're provinces within a country, which means open borders between you and the other, but not between you and, say, another country. So, foreign occupation, a potential rapprochement, and what Israel are currently doing seems to be the three options available to them, the three realistic options anyway, but among those realistic options, the reproachment seems to be the least likely due to the bad blood on both sides. Now, bad blood hasn't stopped reproachments from happening. Uh, Arabia and Iran are in the midst of a swimming reproachment right now, and I'll cover that in a little bit, but as it stands, I don't think enough time has passed with the two not being straight up hostile to each other, for them to pursue this. The blood is fresh, and it's hot. There's been killing all this year, and people being forced off their homes. But what is Israel going to do? Because remember, remember, the fighting keeps breaking out between them and Palestinian groups who don't want Israel to exist in the first place, and well, that's just... Um, unacceptable demand from the point of Israel. People talk, well, I brought it up way back when the fighting first began, and people criticized Israel for an outsized response to rockets uh, that were shot at Israel because few people died to those rocket strikes, but a lot of those rockets were taken down by the Iron Dome. And I brought up the point, if those rockets had hit their targets, we'd be having a different conversation about whether or not Israel's response was heavy-handed, too heavy-handed. The fact of the matter is, there's just these are just two different civilizations. Two different civilizations. Two different peoples who don't need to hate each other. It's not like they're just destined to kill one another. But due to the circumstances of where they live and how distinct they are from one another, 
Well, they're living on the same plot of land, but they're too different to live with each other. And the borders of the places where they live are not adequate for them to coexist side by side. I believe that they could coexist side by side. I do believe that. But the borders are not in place for them to do that. The borders have created conflict. And one side is stronger than the other. Right? There's crimes committed by the two sides. Right? There are there's a mutual hatred. Let no one tell you different. But because Israel is stronger, they have the ability to do what they're doing right now, where they're forcing people off their homes. And it's again, it's a tragedy to see. And it captures my mind in wondering because as you know, I'm the isolationist in the room, all one of us. And I, I routinely ask myself, well, if I'm an isolationist, then what's my response to, well, genocide? How do I respond to that? Because other people will say we have, to, we have to do something. We have to stop them. But my question is, how are you going to do that? Because there are three ways the genocides end. One is military intervention, either from outside powers or from revolt of the people you're killing. There's a change of heart of the people committing the deed. And then there's the completion of the act. So, with those three ways that genocides end, how do I, as the guy who doesn't want to be involved in any of this, how do I respond to that? It's a strange conundrum. And issues like this sort of bring it up back to the forefront of my mind. Because I guess I still haven't answered that question myself. Although, I'm pretty sure I'm leaning towards the I still won't get involved. But, that's Israel and Palestine. And I wonder about those two. I really do. Especially if Israel is successful. And moving these people off their land, where will they go? What will they do when they get to their new locations? Because they're going to settle down somewhere and they're going to have a very, they're going to have very, very, very strong opinions on how they feel about Israel in a region prone to Islamic radicalism and extremism. I see the Palestinians essentially being like, like Poland, you know, like Poland after the partitions way back when Prussia, Austria, and Russia partitioned Poland and annexed them, and there wasn't Poland anymore, but you had Polish patriots who continued to fight for a a patriot, a Polish homeland. I see something like that in the future of the Palestinians, given the current course of events. And they'll probably find backers, if for no other reason than geopolitical, than geopolitics. Because no one, let's be honest, no one in the region really cares about the Palestinians. Certainly not enough to go fight Israel again. But Iran might. Iran just might. Iran is getting stronger and Israel continues to fight Iran. They're in a, I keep saying it, in a state of undeclared conflict with one another. I see the Palestinians finding an, a strong ally in Iran. And more importantly, I see Iran as f- seeing the Palestinians as useful towards fighting Israel. Because 
with the Palestinians, you have a way, Iran would have a way of fighting back against Israel on Israeli territory. Because Israel is able to routinely infiltrate Iran and hit them from the inside. But with the Palestinians, uh, for the time being, because, you know, they haven't, they haven't been forced off all the land in Israel. Once that happens, what I'm saying of the Iranians using them as a as a Achilles heel of Israel won't be possible. But as it stands, Iran can use the Palestinians as the chink in the Israeli armor. And they can hit Israel in a place where it really, really hurts. Now, they haven't doubled down on such a policy. They're pretty focused on other things, like the Syrians of a war, uh, backing the Houthis in Yemen, and really securing their hold over their their pact, their alliance that they have in the Middle East, while also dealing with their new neighbor, the Islamic Emirate, who's really an old neighbor, but they're back in power now, so they're sort of refiguring out how they where they stand next to each other. So Iran is preoccupied right now with its immediate neighbors, but in the near future, I see them eventually, when they have the free time, looking to Palestine as a way of counter-attacking Israel in a way that doesn't immediately get countries to go to war with Iran. Because that's the other thing. Israel Israel's able to do direct actions against Iran because they get a pass. Iran won't ever get a pass in the current global order. They will never get such a pass to do anything close to Israel like what Israel does to Iran. They have to be smart. And using the Palestinians to hit Israel where it hurts, well, that's being smart. I see an alliance between the Palestinians and Iran for geopolitical purposes exclusively. Again, most peoples in the Middle East have sort of dropped the Palestinian issue as an issue. But Palestine has a hope in Iran. And I'm pretty sure Israel likely sees that very clearly. And there isn't much Israel is going to be able to do about that uh, other than forcing the Palestinians off their land. So we'll, we'll see where this very complicated mess goes. And see how it develops and how it and changes the geopolitical scene here. The Middle East has become a very interesting place. Uh, and I guess for some people in all the wrong reasons. But that is the Middle East. That's Israel and Iran and Palestine. We're going to talk about uh, other things. Like the James Webb Telescope, which has launched into space. And I can't wait to see what pictures it gets. I believe it's supposed to be like a, a better version of the Hubble telescope. So we'll see what it's able to capture. I do love me some space travel. Polish. Uh, in Poland, the Polish Deputy Prime Minister, Jarosław Kaczynski, has accused Germany of trying to build a Federal Fourth Reich. And that is in quotes, Federal Fourth Reich. And this is, in, uh, this is a part of a larger criticism of attempts that have been made by Germany and also by France. Uh, attempts that have been made by those two to federalize the Union. Uh, and I say this because Kaczynski also accuses the European Court of Justice 
of being an instrument of that process, the federalization process. And that sort of that sort of brings me to one of the things I see with the EU. One of the big problems that it runs into routinely. I talk about the constant perpetual secession crisis that they're in. And I, I mean that. They're in a perpetual secession crisis with varying degrees, mind you. It's, there, aren't, there aren't too many large-scale secessionist movements from the EU as it stands. Not since Brexit. But the EU is constantly struggling between which way it's going to go. Because it can't stay the same. Right? It, it can't afford to stay the same. Because there are lots of discontent with the way the EU operates right now. And that, those same discontent, those same issues, lead to separatist movements. And people that don't want to be part of the EU. People that don't want to be a part of the Euro. People that want, like Britain, their independence. So the EU cannot afford to stay the same. Especially when it comes to its neighborhood, where it's constantly getting into fights with Russia... But it has no way of exercising its strength beyond its borders. And I bring that up as well. It's really good at imposing restrictions on its member states, but it's really bad at imposing its will on countries that are not in the EU. The EU has almost negative power where they can benefit other countries by harming their own internal economies, but they can never strike out or lash out at even just a neighbor, a neighboring country to the EU. So the EU cannot afford to stay the same, especially if it's going to continue to pursue anti-Russia policies. They, they will not survive that at all, as they are now. They have to choose. Will they go forward with federalization, or will they fall apart? Slowly, over time... But there are strong forces like France and Germany who want federalization. They want a stronger EU, a more integrated EU. And for the purposes of the EU, that would be great because it means more cohesion, uh, easier cooperation between the member states as they would become states, independent countries with a supranational government. So it would be better for cohesion purposes if they were more federalized. But the problem that they run into when they do that is there are countries that resist federalizations. They only want to be a part of the EU for security and for economic access to the bloc. Because the EU spans almost all of Europe and it spans all of Europe's major economies minus Russia. But beyond the benefits, those economic benefits and security benefits of being a part of the Union, a lot of countries in, say, Eastern Europe, especially in Eastern Europe, don't want federalization. They want to be a part of the EU, but they want to be a part of the EU as it stands. So you have an East-West split where the East wants to be a part of the EU as it stands with actually less control over independent nations but then in the West, in Germany and France, and about half of Britain, but they're not a part of this anymore, in Portugal, you have forces that want 
more federalization, and the two don't mix. The two do not mix, but the way forward, if you decentralize to appease the Eastern Europeans, you're going to lose you're going to lose the west of Europe. But if you federalize to appease the west of Europe, you're going to lose the east. So they're in a really tight struggle. And it's it kind of reminds me of where the U.S. was in the lead up to the Civil War and for a period after it as well, where who has the authority? Is it the states or the federal government? Except in the case of the EU... Each state is an independent country rather than a state in a union that is already federal. And instead of arguing over the strength of the states within a federal system or the strength of the federal government within a federal system, the EU is arguing over whether or not there is a federal system and whether or not there should be one. So the difference is more extreme there. And that's where I see the breaking point. There was a breaking point in the U.S. over the same issue, although the catalyst was slavery, and that was the bigger issue, which states' rights and federal government rights were sort of secondary to. But with the EU, there's no slavery. This is front and center, and, but the divide is bigger because there is no federalization, and they're not subordinate states to the federal government. They're independent countries. I see that being the breaking point. And so... The EU is in for a rough ride. It's a, it's a predicament that the EU is in. And we'll see where they go. I, I don't see them falling into a civil war unless the federalists become a, a stronger bloc. Because as it stands, I don't see people fighting a civil war to maintain the EU like I did, like we saw with the US. Because each side is, isn't strong enough to do so to where they'd be able to fight each other although time changes everything so we'll see we'll really see the eu has a decision that is now coming to a head federalism or decentralization and we'll see where they go because if decentralization wins out you're going to see a an expansion of the russian alliance network out of the sheer interest the geopolitical interests of the countries living near Russia's preferred borderlands. Uh, I see Romania and Hungary siding with Russia at some point in the future. If decentralization is the path forward, as Eastern Europe will resist federalization attempts. So, I see this conflict, this internal conflict within the EU, coming to a head, and it will change the map of Europe. I can, I can guarantee that much. There will either be a stronger EU, which is probably smaller, or there'll be no real EU at all, and it will continue to be the new Holy Roman Empire. We'll, we'll keep our eyes on that one. In other news, we have Saudi Arabia, uh, and this is this is actually a big one. Saudi Arabia approves visas for three Iranian diplomats to take up posts at the Organization for Islamic Co Cooperation. Uh, at the headquarters of the OIC. And where's that headquarters? It's in Arabia. Arabia has approved visas for three Iranian diplomats to take up posts at the OIC headquarters, which is based in Arabia. That is huge. 
that is absolutely huge and it's it's uh, the biggest sign the biggest change brought about by the rapprochement between Arabia and Iran since the rapprochement began and like i said Arabia and Israel were de facto allies but as it stands Arabia is reconfiguring its place and its strategic politics to better suit the reality. Iran is the dominant power of the Middle East. Arabia seems to recognize that they can't keep fighting Iran as they are. They need some breathing room. And the best way to get breathing room when you're talking about a country that's right next to you is to make peace with them. And given the animosity between the two and the two governments and the two religions, Shia and Sunni Muslim, Shia and Sunni Islam, this is huge because you have the leader of the Shia world, Iran, making peace with the leader of the Sunni Islamic world, Arabia. This is going to be huge. And I suppose the next step at some point is going to be allowing Iranians to visit the holy cities in Arabia. Now, that'll, that'll be the icing on the cake. That'll be the absolute icing on the cake. But it's possible. This, this thawing of relations between the two opens up a whole lot of possibilities. And I gotta say, the, the Middle East has become a very interesting place to look at. And it's just the changes... And it's not all violence and war. It's so interesting to look at. It's such, it's such a change of pace from what we've gotten used to when looking at the Middle East. But this is huge. It's meaningful. And it's peaceful. And you know what? I think it's a good thing. Now, I, I imagine Israel doesn't think it's a good thing. Especially if the Iran and Arabia start to warm up more to each other um israel is going to be the big loser here because arabia was israel's biggest ally in the region now arabia is reconfiguring itself at the same time you have a, a lost u.s foreign policy there uh the u.s foreign policy team doesn't quite know what they want and when i talk to regular people isolationism seems to be the unspoken word of the day. America is entering an isolationist phase uh, from the ground up, and that's the force to be reckoned with, especially once it comes to fruition. I don't see America being involved in a whole lot of places, even places that most people can't imagine America not being in, like Europe, Western Europe specifically, and Oceania. My hope and my goal is for the isolationist wave to get us out of those places as well. No, that's for the future. But if you're Israel and you're looking at the changing politics of your allies, your biggest allies, well, you're basically being put in a corner. Iran is the dominant power. Arabia is leaving you openly uh, for better relations with Iran. And America is an uncertainty right now. Which I guess is one more reason why they've decided to double down on trying to settle the Palestine issue once and for all. But really good news in the Middle East. And that's 
pretty good. Although, although Iran has conducted war games in the Persian Gulf, so they're flexing their muscles now. Two signs that Iran is, well, two more confirmations that Iran is the dominant power here. And now Iran's starting to flex their muscles. In other news, Russia and China are now developing advanced weapon systems together. And what I guess we figured that they would at some point, the strategic alignment, the partnership, there it is. The strategic partnership between the two grows stronger, although they refuse to call themselves allies. We'll see if that changes as well over time, but they are getting very integrated. And courtesy of that alliance, they choose to stay out of each other's spheres of influence. As I mentioned when talking about Russia's extended sphere in Central Asia. Uh, in the U.S., we have put a ban on products that have been made in Xinjiang, although Russia won't be doing that. So they'll probably turn to China to, well, they won't turn to China. China will turn to Russia to make up the difference as best they can, and probably Iran as well, who was also a part of the Belt and Road. So there's that. The Ethiopian federal government has stated their armies will not advance further into Tigray after a small reversal of their gains that they've made, uh, reversal of previous territorial losses, they've taken back some pieces of the Tigray, and they're halting their advance, which is probably a smart move. They don't want to fall into another trap and get encircled like they did before, and fall into the crisis that they're in now. So they're taking a more methodical approach to ending the war, and we'll see if they're victorious. We really will. And last but not least, Turkish and Qatari companies have agreed to joint operation in the Kabul airport. And they're likely to bring uh, investment and opportunity to Afghanistan. And it seems that Turkey has found their way in. If you remember back in uh, August, when people were talking about the airbase and who was going to occupy Bagram Air Base, it was one of the people... One of the countries that offered up themselves as a solution was Turkey. They offered to send troops to hold Bagram Air Base. Uh, Afghanistan and everyone else said no. But now, Turkey has found their way in. And that was back when I was talking about Turkey. Poking and prodding at all their neighbors to see if they could get in somewhere. Getting in where they fit in is what I called it. And they have found their way into Afghanistan. Through the use of a lot their ally, Qatar... And by bringing their, well, by changing up the way that they were trying to get in. Instead of doing it through military means, they were doing it through their businesses. So now they have a foot in the door, or at least they will. They still have to work out the final negotiations with the Islamic Emirate itself. But it's, they're making progress towards expanding their influence. And we will see where that goes, and I guess we'll get into the meat in a couple months. All right, and we're back. Now we're going to talk about the JCPOA. I said last week I'd do an update on it, uh, a more in-depth update. So here we go. The Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, more commonly referred to as the Iran nuclear deal, is entering into another round of talks uh, and discussions between Iran and the other participants on the deal, France, the UK, China, Germany, and Russia. The US used to be a part of the deal. We pulled out under the Trump administration, so now these are the participants of the discussions. 
the talks are currently set to return uh, the talks to return of the deal have continued to drag on with negotiations set to resume in Vienna which is the capital of Austria they're set to resume in Vienna on the 20 oh today they're they're gonna resume today so that's what's happened so far and according to Enrique Mora the head chairman of the negotiations the JCPOA Joint Commission will meet to discuss and define the way ahead that's the quote there uh, he went on to stress making haste on dealing with major issues and objections to the deal uh, then saying welcome to the eighth round and my response is eight rounds eight rounds goodness i i know i deliberately ignored talking about this for a while because i thought that there wasn't much of an update to give and i thought last episode was a bit lackluster so i decided i would do a more in-depth update on it but um i i guess i've there isn't much of an update. Uh, it seems I knew more about what was going on than I gave myself credit for. Because they're still stalled. And it's strange to me because every time I gather up the news for the episodes, there's always at least one or two articles talking about the deals. And the talk, not the deals, the talks about this deal. And they're always, every week, it's always there in the background. And... I thought that maybe uh, after a while there'd be something to update on, but I guess there just wasn't much of an update. I mean, if they haven't sorted out the outstanding issues, as Mora had put it, then this deal really hasn't moved an inch since the negotiations uh, re restarted, and the negotiations clearly haven't gone anywhere since they've been renewed either. This is... Probably why the Iraqi foreign minister now wants direct talks between Iran and the U.S. Now, whether or not that'll happen is up for debate. Uh, well, there hasn't been any real effort to get the United States back into the deal. Although Biden um, had promised to do so, it seems that foreign policy, along with a number of others, seem to take a backseat to climate change agenda and Russia. That seems those seem to be the priorities as of late. So I don't see for the time being any real effort by the United States to rejoin the talks and even if we did, I'm not entirely sure if we'd move because that would just introduce a new player to the equation and that would bring with it more grievances and issues that would need to be resolved. So not quite sure where this is going, but I can tell you it hasn't gone very far since, well, at all. Yeah, but uh, we'll, we'll see where it goes, you know, always worth keeping an eye on. But uh, for the time being, the talks have stalled, and there doesn't seem to be a clear way forward as... If there was, we wouldn't be talking about trying to find the clear way forward. So, we'll, uh, we'll leave this at that. And move on to another topic I wanted to talk about, which is Libya's election.
Now, we've been talking about Libya's election back when it was... Uh, actually, we've been talking about it since before let, before last year. Well, no, we started in last year, um, and we talked about it since before the date it was supposed to be held. I made the mistake last year, thinking that it was going to take place in 2020. It actually took place this year, and we've been tracking the progress uh, towards that election ever since. And what we have now is not the election, but instead the postponement of the election. Uh, yeah, so let's get into this. The election that was supposed to take place on Christmas, so last Saturday, the election in Libya was delayed by a whole month, and the vote in the makeshift parliament, the transitory parliament that has been established by the UN and the country, the vote on how to move forward from the political crisis that has ensued since the delaying of the vote, uh, the vote on how to move forward has also been delayed. So this went quite a bit differently from how I thought it was going to go, although there's still room for the things that I feared to happen, but we'll just have to see how it plays out, because there's still a month, there's still going to be elections, and there's we just have to wait a month for it, but it went very differently. I did not expect the vote to be delayed. I expected there to be, uh, well, I made it very clear over the past year so far that I believed the way this was going to go was that the vote would be heavily contested, it would be declared illegitimate by the losing side, and I declared that it would be straight up ignored by various militia groups because we covered how uh, a militia, a really large militia in Tripoli, flat out said they're not going to respect the results of the election. So how do you have peace when you have factions like that, large factions as well? In a large city, Tripoli is a major city in the country. How do you have peace when that's the current state of affairs? And so that's why I believed that the election would go pretty badly from a just looking at the state of the domestic, well, politics and interfactional politics as well. It didn't seem as though the vote was going to go very well, but. Now, we don't have the vote at all, uh, we have to wait a month for it, so things are even more uncertain than they were before, and I would even go as far as to say that delaying of the vote makes things a little bit worse, because now, uh, things are complicated, because there was a date, and now it's been pushed back, so what this does is it raises the stakes on the election, now that it's been delayed, because there was, now there's a political crisis over the fact that it's been delayed, so you've added new problems that are also going to be reflected in the results of the election when it is held, on top of the problem of the civil war at which the election was supposed to solve in the first place. So you have even more division now over the postponement of the election than you had back when it was just an election to end the civil war. So, in my view, this move, however appropriate it may have seemed to the people who made it, because people usually don't make decisions like this with no reason, it's 
probably uh, a move that they considered among other options and felt that this was the best way to do it as they probably feared that there was going to be an upsurge in violence and they may or may not feel that they're ready to handle that because uh, again they're i'm fairly confident that whoever loses the election is going to declare it illegitimate and that's and then independently of that you have militia groups that are just not going to respect the outcome of the vote so i'm pretty sure they know that as well as i do because they're in the country and they're governing this country and i'm reading articles about it so it's very likely that that was viewed as a good option although i will still say that it does complicate things and presents a new problem where one previously there was already enough problems so we'll we'll see what happens in a month but for the time being things are complicated so given that this is the new state of affairs where it's even more complicated than it was before again it raises the stakes on the election the election has to go fairly well every side has to respect the outcome of it and the best way you're going to be able to achieve that is to be extremely transparent during the process so that there can be not even a shadow of a slimmer of a doubt so i don't know if that's quite the way that this is going to be conducted i think it's going to be pretty bare bones as far as elections go but unless it's extremely transparent and everyone's willing to go along with the outcome of the the election i think things are going to go badly when they need to go pretty well in order for the war to end basically because that's what's at stake with this election the end of the civil war so the stakes were already high to begin with the election has to go well for the war to end. Both sides have to accept it, because if e any one side doesn't, the war goes on. And regardless of whether the two sides of the war accept it, you still have militia groups that are just flat out refusing that the vote even exists. They're just going to operate as though it doesn't. And I'm repeating myself at this point. The election just really needs to go well. There's a whole lot riding on this election, and now things are complicated and will the fate of this country rests on what happens in these elections and that's pretty it would be exaggeration if it wasn't a civil war i am prone to my exaggerations but that's the that's the truth there's a whole lot riding on this and so i'll stop repeating myself but that's the libyan election and i will have to wait another month to see how things go but uh yes i think late got a late episode i found some interesting things to talk about and we have pretty good news i mean arabia and iran the rapprochement is continuing pretty well the israelis uh well that that one's not pretty well but that's sort of a just an interesting conundrum that we've found ourselves in with israel and palestine and by interesting i mean tragic but um we've uh, i've found a way around the uh the drought of news and i know there's a lot to talk about but a lot of the major issues that most publications are talking about are things we've already covered and multiple times at that there's a lot of talk about war between russia and ukraine there's a lot of talk about taiwan 
I have covered both of those topics pretty extensively and where I stand on them. So I don't think that there'd be much meaningful that I could contribute to those conversations that I haven't already said. The situation hasn't changed enough. And as far as the situation in Eastern Europe, as I call it, the Eastern question, I, I was already doing weekly updates on that. So, uh, yes, we have, I've managed to break through the wall of no news to get you a, another good episode. But that's all I have for you today. I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. These last two have been a bit shorter than usual, but I've made it. We've made it to the end, and we found some pretty interesting things to talk about. For once, we're not talking about mass death, like we do when we talk about Africa and spheres of influence and wars over here and there and the prospect of wars here and there. It's nice to talk about peacetime happenings on the geopolitical scene. But I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing, folks, and we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Hashan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So, till we meet again next Monday, servus.